Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 27. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I wish you a good morning as well, but I'm going to give you a troubling scenario. Imagine for a moment that someone you love and depend on, someone that you love and depend on is about to leave for good. It's a pretty ominous scenario, pretty disturbing way to start this off, I suppose. I know that some of you have experienced this in one form or another. And so here's here's the question at the heart of this passage. I ask you this not just to like cast a depressing mood, but I ask you this because it's tied to the heart of this passage. Given how much their departure would would sting and change your life, given the way it would force you to live differently and feel hurt deeply, here's the question. Is there anything you can imagine that in that moment and through that scenario would bring you true comfort? Let me ask the same question another way. Is there anything that they, before they left, could say or do? Or is there anything that anyone could say or do? It could be said or done at all that would set your mind and heart at ease, that would bring you to the point, not just where you are confident you could endure, but bring you to a place of genuine peace. Through this loss. Again, that's largely what this passage is about. We just sang it. I want to read 27 again. And I love scripture memory. We should all memorize scripture. But one of the things that I hope this sermon helps you to see is that that promise, my, this promise of Jesus, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's a great promise. But what comes before that is the means to that end. And so if all we have is that 
promise, but we lack the means to receive it. It's an interesting idea, even a a generically comforting idea. But Jesus gives us three ingredients to receiving that peace. And so we we want to keep Scripture in its context as much as possible. So here's the the scenario. I, I asked you to imagine something that at this point in John's Gospel, the disciples were experiencing. Not theoretically, but but actually. Jesus was about to leave his disciples and return to the Father. That is, he was about to die on the cross, rise from the dead, reveal himself to his followers in his glorified body, and then ascend back to heaven where he would reign and still is reigning at the Father's right hand. Well, as he made this increasingly clear to the disciples, he gave them little bits throughout his entire time with them, but in these last hours before the crucifixion would happen, he was making it increasingly clear to them what was what was going to take place. And as he did, as you can imagine, the disciples became increasingly confused and uncertain and concerned. You have to picture this. Like in our in our Bibles, it's you know, it's a it's a few pages, but these men had given three plus years of their life to following Jesus. They they banked everything on this, assuming in some sense that he was going to be a conquering king, which of course he is, but they're figuring out exactly the nature of how he would conquer. They banked everything on it, and he was about to go away. Our passage for this morning is about Jesus providing actual content, not not generic spiritual promises, but actual tangible, real ways that he would bring them peace in his absence. It is a passage about the path to a peaceful life, even when living faithfully to Jesus' commission on our lives, causes our circumstances to be in what would, in any other scenario, be overwhelming. So with that in mind, there are, there are three main themes to this passage, or three key aspects of the path of peace. First, these aren't going to be obvious. Like if I were to say to you, I'm going to give you three ingredients for a peaceful life through whatever trial comes your way. I don't know. I don't know what would come to your mind. Maybe something like, you know, you'd, you'd be super strong so no one could break into your house or you'd be super smart. So you'd always know what to do if things go funny or I don't know what you think the path to peace, peace is, but I'm not confident any of these three things. Maybe the second one would pop into your head. The first is that love for Jesus always equals obedience to Jesus. You want peace? Take a hold of that principle. Second, when Jesus returned to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to help his followers. That's probably on your list. And third, Jesus' followers, he promised, will experience his resurrection life. Combined, they give us the big idea of this passage. Here's the big idea. Jesus' love for his people would lead him to the cross, would lead him to offer his life as a sacrifice. And Jesus' love for his people would provide for them once he was gone. He didn't leave them as orphans. And from that, our our main takeaways are to love and obey Jesus, to love Jesus by obeying Jesus. Talk about that. To walk in the Spirit's power and not our own, in the Spirit's insight and wisdom as he opens our eyes to the word of God, not our own. And to live in light of the fact that it is not death to die. Doing these things in the light of Jesus' work and his promises and his ever-present help is the path to peace as we give ourselves to Jesus' commission and await his return. Let's pray. 
God, I know that there are people in this room who lack peace. More so, they are going through really hard things, and some have been for a long time. My earnest prayer throughout this week and my earnest prayer now and my great hope from this passage and in the presence of your Spirit is that we wouldn't just hear words or just get our heads around concepts, but that the Spirit would be pleased to bear the actual fruit of growing peace in each of us through the means that Jesus has given to us. I pray that those who are hurting and struggling and going through a a season of difficulty would feel the weight lift today, not, not just by burying their heads in the sand or thinking of something better or hoping that their circumstances would change but by making use of these three means of grace that the Lord left us for this exact purpose. And so please make us as a people and each individually about your business. Help us to do the things that you have commissioned us to do and think and feel and be the things you've commissioned us to be. And as we, as we do, help us to feel your love and experience the power of your spirit and remember that the same resurrection life that you experienced will be ours. And in those things, help us to know the peace that surpasses understanding. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for all who would believe in Jesus, he offered to them blessings, including peace, beyond measure. So let me say that again. You've been at Grace Church. You've heard this many times. If you're new to Grace Church, I'm glad you get to hear it today. For all who would believe in Jesus, Jesus offered blessings, offers blessings beyond measure. And yet Jesus' ministry was primarily marked, even though this was his offering, his offer of grace to the world from the beginning, his ministry was marked mostly by responses of hostility and unbelieving belief. That is, most of the people who heard this promise of Jesus, who encountered Jesus, were either angered by him, and knew they didn't believe in him, or they only believed that they believed in him. They appreciated certain aspects of his work and his teaching and his person, but only to a certain extent and only on their own terms as it fit their own purposes. For those reasons, as Jesus' time on earth was mere, he had mere hours left. I think you remember this is Thursday night, later on Thursday night, he's crucified on Friday. As his time on earth wore down or wound down, it became increasingly important for Jesus to clarify the nature of genuine belief. If if the blessings that he came to bring come through the conduit of belief, we have to be crystal clear on the nature of that belief. That is, if genuine belief is the only path to genuine peace, we've got to be clear on what it means. What does it mean to believe in Jesus in such a way that gives us access to the saving and sanctifying and everlasting grace of Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus in such a way that brings with it true peace in the midst of every hardship? Well, throughout John's gospel, we've encountered several answers to that question. We we just saw one last week. Jesus said that, Those who truly believe in him will do his works and greater still. One of the things it means to believe in Jesus is to do his works and greater still. And in a related way, 
Our passage for this morning opens with a similar answer. To believe in Jesus is to love Jesus, and to love Jesus is to obey Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. All three steps to that sentence. To believe in Jesus is to love Jesus. If you don't love him, you don't really believe in him. And to love Jesus is to obey Jesus. If you don't obey him, you don't really love him. Then you don't really believe in him. So he says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is, of course, a pretty countercultural understanding of love, isn't it? I want you to imagine a hundred engaged couples. They're just so happy right now that you can just see it on their face. You know, Ethan and Emma, I don't think they're here, but they get together and all their problems are just not problems. And (laughs) it's just so sweet to see. If you got a hundred engaged couples and polled them, hey, do you love your fiance? They'd all say yes, otherwise they wouldn't be their fiance, right? But if you ask them what they meant about it, I bet zero out of 100 would say what Jesus just said. Question. Here's the poll, the new Dave poll. Do you love your fiance? Answer. Yes. Question. What do you mean by that? Answer. I love them in the sense that I obey their every command. That would be weird. That's not the answer you would get. That's not the answer you want to get. It would be wrong to give that answer. So why is that the case here? Well, before I explain that, in order to make sure we don't think, you know, we didn't misread this or something like this, Jesus repeated himself two more times. I just read verse 15 and 21. It says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And then again in 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There is an inseparable link between obeying Jesus, keeping his command, keeping his word, and loving him. There are two familiar keys to this idea that I want to share with you, and then a big pile of blessings for those who do. Here's the first key. I've seen it before. Love for someone is always tied to that which is best for them. You simply cannot love someone. You can't believe you love anyone not Jesus or anyone else, apart from caring deeply about their greatest good. Love for and the love of Jesus are no different. The love of Jesus for you and I, for his people, is inseparably tied to achieving that which is best for them. And love for Jesus, our love for Jesus, is inseparably tied to that which is best as well. You know this, right, Grace? Been here, you know this. Imagine your neighbors, just picture your your neighbor, the the grumpy old guy next door. What does it look like to love him? What does it look like to love your neighbors? Does it mean affirming all of their perspectives and political takes and choices and behaviors, which is what most people want? That's what most people think of as being loved, as just affirming everything about you. Does it mean keeping quiet and just letting them borrow your tools and your flower? Does it simply mean not blowing up at them, getting crazy angry with them if your dog, if their dog leaves a mess in your yard? What it mean, what it means to love your neighbor on the most foundational level is knowing what is best for them and giving yourself to it no matter the cost. Unless your neighbor loves Jesus, and sometimes even if they do love Jesus, loving them well like this is often still challenging. It's kind of like taking your kids to the dentist. It's right and good, and they need it. You have to do it, even though they really don't like it or want it or believe you. 
And that leads to the all-important question then of what is best for your neighbor? What What is best for them? And tie it back to this text. That's key. That's key. Here's the second key. Jesus' commands are always what's best. Always. Every time. Jesus only gives commands that perfectly conform to the will of God. Whatever Jesus tells us to do is our greatest good. How do you know what your greatest good is? It's what Jesus tells you. Jesus' commands are the definition of the greatest good. To love someone, then, is to give them everything and only that which Jesus tells you to give them. It should be clear why engaged couples, then, don't love like obey my commands. The reason no fiancé thinks like this about their future spouse is because only Jesus gives perfect commands. He alone is the definition of love. To love your spouse is to long for all that Jesus has for them, for them, to go after that, to commit to that for your whole life, till death do you part, and to give them all that Jesus requires you toward them. How do you love your neighbor? You do for them all that Jesus has commanded you in relation to them. You love them as yourself, the second greatest commandment. You look to meet their physical and spiritual needs. You help them understand what it looks like to live as God designed them to. And you help them to understand that they haven't. You explain to them the consequences of their sin against a holy God and show them the way of forgiveness and reconciliation, not by works, but through faith in Christ. You live in such a way as to show them that you belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. You love your neighbor by obeying Jesus in front of them and toward them. Well, I hope it's clear how obeying Jesus' commands with regard to your neighbor is the essence of your loving them. But how does that relate to your love for Jesus? How does obeying Jesus' commands with regard to others or Jesus himself, how is that at the heart of your love for Jesus? In simplest terms, believing in Jesus, loving Jesus, and obeying Jesus are connected in an entirely unique and inseparable way. To believe in Jesus means understanding who he really is. It's not believing in the idea of Jesus. It's believing in the actual person of Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord and sustainer of all, the one through through whom all things were made, the Savior of the world, the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, as we've, as we've seen in John's gospel. And so to believe in Jesus is to understand him for who he truly is. And what's more, to understand that Jesus is all of those things and more, is to trust that he alone has the power and right to command. His commands are unique from all other commands. He has alone has perfect wisdom and goodness in all of his commands, and he alone has the authority to see and judge all obedience. And so for these reasons, believing in Jesus uniquely means obeying his commands. But more than merely, and here's, here's how we get to the heart of what Jesus meant here, more than merely understanding these things about Jesus and conforming to them, more than just that, believing in Jesus in these ways and And these things means trusting and treasuring them. Trusting and treasuring him and longing for others to do so as well. That is, true belief in Jesus means seeing and sharing the glory of Jesus and orienting our entire selves, our entire being, our entire lives around Jesus, which is what's best for Jesus, namely to be given the obedience and praise and glory that he is due, which is love for Jesus. That is why we say, emphatically, 
that to believe in Jesus is to love Jesus, and to love Jesus is to obey Jesus. You can't remove any of those elements and find the kind of help and hope and peace that Jesus offers. It's also why Jesus said the same thing negatively in verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Like I said, there are two main keys, namely, love is always tied to that which is best, and Jesus' commands are always what's best. But I also said there's a blessing, remarkable, eternal, infinite blessings for all who do. To believe in Jesus is to love Jesus. To love Jesus is to obey his commands. At the same time, to believe in Jesus, love Jesus, and obey Jesus is to live grace entirely and eternally in the grace of Jesus, won by the cross and resurrection. It is to be blessed by Jesus beyond measure. Well, there are many, many more. Jesus names two specific blessings in our passage. Number one, those who love Jesus are also loved by Jesus and by the Father. Verse 21, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him. This is more intuitive to most of us than it was to the disciples first hearing this, and certainly for the Jews in Jesus' day, who were still really trying hard to figure out who this guy was. We know him as the second person of the Godhead, but for the most part, the people who first heard these words of him were still trying to figure this out. Therefore, the promise that if we love Jesus, we already have the love of all three persons of the Godhead was as shocking to them as it is sweet to us. But I want to invite you right now to slow down just a little bit. How many of you have ever heard before that God loves you? Father, Son, and Spirit love you. You've heard that. I know you've heard that. But I want you to slow down for just a minute this morning. I'm hopeful that two things, two aspects of this in particular will really sink in in a new way. Because when they do, the peace that Jesus promises in 27 will follow. First, for those who believe in, love, and obey Jesus, the very God whom you have committed treason against, to know to know Christ, to believe in Christ, is to know first that you have committed treason against God. The very God whom you've committed treason against, who, apart from his willingness to provide for you what you could not provide for yourself, a substitute sacrifice, must punish you with everlasting conscious torment. That's what hell is. That's the wages that sin pays. That same God, that same God, who with all of his wrath ought to punish you and I forever in hell, that same God has set his affection on you. Not only by his grace alone do you not get what you deserve for your sin through belief in Jesus, through love for Jesus, obedience to Jesus, but you get his delight, his love instead. Grace, there is great peace in recognizing the great contrast between what we deserve and what we get because Jesus left. Do you get that? What was for them in that moment, the disciples, the source of great angst that Jesus would leave? is actually the source of great peace, because by leaving, he would go to the Father as a substitute sacrifice. Second, here's the other part. Even if you've heard that God loves you a thousand times, settle on this. That God loves you means that all 
his omnipotence. Do you know what omnipotence means? All power, all powerful. That all of his omnipotence is directed at you for your good. The same power by which he made and perpetually governs the universe. God spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power. And now he has continued since to sustain and govern it by the word of his power. That same power, the same power by which he drew in and cast out the flood, split the Red Sea, the the Israelites might cross. The same power by which he opens and closes wombs and creates new life raises the dead, calls sinners to life, performs all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders, is fully being used to love you. (laughs) That's awesome. There's peace in that grace. When Jesus says what he says in verse 27, this is underneath it. There is peace in recognizing the omnipotence of God being spent continually on loving you. What a blessing. Here's the second blessing. Those who love Jesus will see Jesus and dwell with God. Look at 21. I will manifest myself to the one who believes me, believes in me, who loves me and obeys me. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll do that? How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Well, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The second explicit blessing of Jesus that leads to the peace of Jesus through every trial in our obedience to the commission of Jesus is Jesus' promise that although he is leaving, he will reveal himself again to his followers. There's a lot of discussion and debate over what exactly Jesus meant by that. Whether he was referring to his post-resurrection appearance to his disciples, you know, he would die on the cross and on the third day raised from the dead and then spend time on earth with his followers before rising again to the Father's right hand. Was he referring to that or was he referring to we'll manifest ourselves in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost or was this at his second coming? Well, I don't know that we can know for sure. There's different reasons to believe each, but we can find great rest in the fact that all three are true. (laughs) We don't have to pick. All three are true. What's more, we can find rest in the fact that this was more than a simple promise that at some point in the future, they would catch another glimpse. At least in the movies, you hear it say when someone loses a loved one, one of your parents passes away, what I wouldn't give for one more moment with that person. That would be sweet for Jesus to promise that. But more than just that, more than just another glimpse at some point, it was a promise as we saw at the beginning of chapter 14, that all who hope in Jesus, who believe in Jesus, who love Jesus and obey Jesus, will dwell with him in his house forever as his beloved sons and daughters. And so to believe in, love, and obey Jesus leads above all and once again to perfect and unlimited and eternal fellowship with God, no matter what comes at us in this life. What a blessing. So remember, at the beginning I said this is mainly a passage about comfort and peace to those who are following Jesus and experiencing hardship because of that. Jesus shared the things he shared to help his disciples respond to the departure The fact that he was about to leave with hope and faith, that they might live lives of peace in the midst of difficulty and persecution as they carried out Jesus' commission. Jesus' words concerning the nature of his love and the nature of love for him are just that. 
His commands are the path that they must follow because they are the path of fullness of life and love. They are the path of God's blessing and pleasure. They are the path of all man, that all mankind was made for. They are the way and the truth and the life. And when we really believe these things, Grace, we will know peace in the midst of the most challenging trials that the world and our flesh and the devil can throw at us. Well, as remarkable as that is, <laughs> and that's remarkable, Jesus offered even more help and an even greater reason for comfort. If, if that were all that you had, you'd have enough. But that's not all. Where, where is this peace from verse 27 coming from? It comes from loving Jesus and obeying his commands, but there's an even greater answer as well. A greater comfort and peace to his disciples, including you and I. To love Jesus is to obey him, and to obey him is to walk in the path of blessing. But how many of you have done that? (laughs) How many of you have perfectly loved Jesus and obeyed him this past week? The answer, of course, is none of us. That's why he died, to pay for that. But how do we do that even now on the other side of accepting his death? And the answer is he has sent for us another helper. None of us can do this on our own, but such is the grace of God that he provides for us what he requires of us. And in this case, he provides for us a sufficient help in the form of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father after I leave, and he will give you another helper. As you contemplate the trials that you are going through, and you can't imagine what it looks like on the other side of this storm, Remember what Jesus is doing. He's about to leave, which is the worst thing the disciples can possibly imagine. But he says, it's better for you when I go. We'll get to that in chapter 16. But And I will, after I leave, ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Notice it says another, another helper. He was their helper while he was with them, but he was going away. It is good, comforting, peace-giving news, indeed, that the Father would send another helper in his absence. Again, far from being the JV team, though, Jesus is varsity and he's about to take off. Far from sending the JV team, chapter 16 says, Jesus' own words, it is to your advantage. It's better for you in a certain sense when I go away. Better in the sense that I will die on the cross to pay for your sins, but better as well in the sense that only then will the helper come to you. If I do not go, I will not send him to you. Jesus' ministry on earth was perfect. And yet by taking on flesh, it was limited in a way that the spirits was not. As remarkable as it sounds, Jesus told his followers that it was better for them when the spirit came. Indeed, he gives us a few ways in which it is better, which is help and peace for us. First, while Jesus would leave the disciples, and that was the source of their angst in this moment, the spirit never would. 16, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. You see it? To be with you, to be with you temporarily, to be with you forever, always. Once the Spirit came upon Jesus' followers at Pentecost, he would never leave them. Grace Church, once you place your faith in Jesus, once you believe in Jesus, the Spirit will never leave you. Imagine your trial. Imagine the trial you're going through. If your hope is in Jesus, what peace there is in the midst of every trial and the fact that the Spirit is with you through every second of every one of them. Never, never, even if every person on earth leaves you, never will you need to endure any suffering in your own strength. Never do you have to wonder if God has abandoned you. Never 
will you be apart from God's immediately present grace? Never are you really alone through trial. The Spirit will be with you forever. In your darkest hour, find perfect peace as you learn to trust the perfect promise of Jesus and experience the perfect presence and perfect fruit of the Spirit who never leaves. How is it better? Number one, the Spirit is with us forever. Second, while Jesus lived with his disciples, the Spirit lives in us. While Jesus lived with the disciples, the Spirit lives in us. Verse 17, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it receives neither him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit's ministry, which only began after Jesus left in this way, is to our advantage. He lives in us at all times. That really brings, that reality brings peace in the midst of the darkest trials. Those who reject Jesus, Jesus said, those who do not believe in him will also reject the Spirit. Those who do not love Jesus cannot see and are not helped by the Spirit. Those who disobey Jesus do so because they do not know him and therefore cannot know the Spirit whom he sends. But again, For those who believe in Jesus, receive Jesus, see Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus, and obey Jesus, even when Jesus is not physically present with us. Even when that's the case, we live in perfect, the the perfect, indwelling, unending ministry of the Spirit, and that's peace. Third, the third advantage, last one, of the Spirit's ministry named in this passage. And the means of peace of the Spirit is the fact that He helps us by teaching all things and reminding his followers of all that Jesus has said. These things I have spoken to you, verse 25, while I'm with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. More than likely, Grace, I need you to hear this. This is another verse that has to be quoted in context. More than likely, this was primarily a specific promise to the apostles and the means by which they were able to write the New Testament. There is a unique way in which the Spirit ministered to them and taught them all things and reminded them of all things. It was the reason that the disciples only understood and remembered certain teachings of Jesus after the Spirit came. We saw that in chapter 12 and later in chapter 13. And yet, while there are differences, there are also important similarities. The rest of The Word of God tells us that the Spirit continues to give spiritual insight and remembrance to His people. It is by the Spirit alone that we can see and hear the things of God. The Spirit convicts us of sin by reminding us of Jesus' teaching when we go astray. In a way that Jesus could only do when He was physically present with His people during His ministry on earth, the Spirit does perpetually for all who trust in Jesus, and in that is great peace. Here's a final step, shortest step. Three things. Where does the peace of verse 27 come? It comes from loving Jesus, which is obeying Jesus. It comes from the sending of the Spirit. And finally, the peace promised by Jesus to all who would believe in, love, and obey him is the good news that all who hope in him will share in his resurrection life. Jesus would leave by death, but he would do so in such a way as to conquer death. For himself and all who are in him. It is peace to know that death is not the end for believers in Jesus. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The greatest words, grace. I don't know what you 
How would you finish that sentence? What are the greatest words you could ever hear? However you finish the sentence, this is how you should finish the sentence. The greatest words you can ever hear are these. Because I live, you also will live. Because I am about to die on your behalf, you need not fear death. Death is not the end for me, and it will not be the end for anyone who believes in me, loves me, and obeys me. I will rise from the dead, and so will you. As we move closer to Easter then, remember, Grace, it is not death to die. What peace there is, come what may, in believing that if the worst comes, it's but a doorway to heaven. So as we move to communion, consider Jesus' final words once again. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not the kind that the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. As you can see, Jesus' peace is not the kind of peace the world gives. The best the world can offer is an attempt to work with you to change your circumstances. But Jesus gives and leaves us with a peace that is above and beyond all circumstances. Are you feeling heavy, Grace? Are there circumstances in your life that are weighing you down? As you walk the road of faith, do you know suffering and pain? Do you know loneliness? Forsake every, this passage is a charge to forsake every attempt to map out your own way out of those things. Instead, in childlike faith, believe in Jesus. Set your love upon Jesus in the knowledge that he has set his love upon you. Give yourself to obeying Jesus for his commands are always what's best. Call on the Holy Spirit who lives in you to convict you of your sin and strengthen you for obedience. And remember that you will certainly share in Jesus' resurrection life. In these things are peace that surpasses understanding. And so in belief, love, and obedience, let's now take the Lord's Supper. Because as we do, we are obeying Jesus, which is an expression of our love to Jesus, which is evidence of our genuine belief in Jesus. And so even now, by taking this meal, we usher in verse 27, which is the peace of Jesus.